Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You are listening to Youngstime Movie Review at YoungstimeMovieReview.com. And we, now we are the Children of the Guys, if this means we have to watch another Star Wars movie. The Children of the 80s are back with another film from our childhood. I'm Chris, number one. I'm Chris, number two. <laughs> I'm Patrick. There's a lot of dramatic pauses in this opening. Well, no, I, I was trying to who, think. I of, didn't know who was going second. Sorry. I, oh. And I was think, trying to think of something clever to say, and I just didn't have any. <laughs> and for this non-chaotic episode, we are reviewing 1980s 9 to 5. Directed by Shane A.'s favorite Australian-American director, Colin Higgins. And starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly's Parton, and Dabney Colin. Colin? And Colin. Dab- <laughs> yeah, well, Dabney's very talented. And Dabney Coleman with a touching cameo by Sterling Hayden. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor. Tonight's podcast is brought to you by Rat. Whether you're trying to rid yourself of field mice, house rats, or that sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical, bigot son of a bitch of a boss, Rat will put the bastard into the ground after just one sip. Rat, found in most grocery stores next to the skinny and sweet. They look Boom. so similar. <laughs> hell? Uh, that took your breath away, didn't it, Chris? It took my breath away. <laughs> And I've got this week's summary, two pages. I don't know if I want two-page summary. Maybe I'll abbreviate. For this film? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, I was going to write a shorter version because we don't really want to talk about a two-page summary. But anyway, nine to five. Judy Burnley is a conservative 1970s homemaker whose husband has just left her for a younger, cuter woman, his secretary. Now alone in the world, Judy gets a job as a secretary at Consolidated Companies, Inc. I don't know what the hell they make, but that's the name. Um, And that's a place where she, too, very well might meet the boss of her dreams. On her first day on the job, Judy meets her supervisor and trainer, Violet Newstead a sarcastic widow of four that's worked for the company for 12 effing years, but never promoted. I think it's because she's kind of sarcastic, honestly. Uh, Violet introduces Judy to her sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot of a boss, Vice President Frank Hart, whom Violet has also trained once upon a time. One of those sexist, egotistical lies of his is that he's having an affair with his attractive and equally married secretary, Dora Lee Rhodes. I'm sensing a secretary boss theme here. Uh, Violet's been playing nice with Hart, so he will promote her for an upcoming position uh, that's going to be opening up in about six weeks. But when the day comes, Hart promotes a man instead of her because he's a man supporting a family. And Violet becomes furious. 
She tears into Hart and lets it slip to Dorley that Hart's been telling anyone who will listen that, to, that the two are having an affair. Violet then leaves to get drunk at a nearby bar. At a girl. Chris, I should have you yell at a girl in the background. I can do that. Uh, Dorley, now furious over Hart's lies, tears into him as well. And guess what? She too leaves to go get drunk at the same bar. And a girl. Uh, as this goes on, Judy learns from Hart that uh, he has fired her co- her coworker Maria. I don't know if Maria had a last name. Uh, for sharing with Judy how much money she makes, how much money Hart possibly makes, and how much the office snoop Roz makes, which of course violates the National Relations Act, National Labor Relations Act, nineteen thirty-five. In the process. That cocksucker. Patrick, in your legal opinion, would uh, violating that act count for being sexist, egotistical, lying, or hypocritical? Do you know which one of those it would cover? Not sexist. Not lying. Possibly hypocritical, because I'm sure Hart talks about his salary with people. We might need to add a fifth one for the boss. Maybe criminal. We'll find out. Uh, furious, Judy doesn't tear into heart. She's she's too dainty, too petite for that. Um, but she does head to the nearby bar for a drink with the ladies. Got a girl. Uh, the three then bond back at Dora Lee's place over some Maui Wowie and tell tall tales over how they would deal with heart once and for all. Very Disney animated stories. Judy would shoot him safari style and mount his head on the wall like a trophy. Dora Lee would hogtie him Wild West style before roast him like uh, chestnuts on an open fire. And Violet would dress up as Snow White uh, and she would poison his coffee because it looks like skinny and sweet. The next day, those ladies must have been hung over or something because Violet accidentally mistakes a box of rat poison for artificial sweetener because... Who doesn't have that in their locker at work? Uh, she puts an unhealthy do- dose in Hart's coffee. However, Hart doesn't uh, get the chance to drink it because before he does, that damn locking mechanism on his reclining chair falls again after he told Dorley to fix it. Like how many times? I don't know. Too many times. Instead, he hits his head on the credenza, knocking him out. It's a pretty serious time for being blacked out, by the way. Surprised he came too. Uh, when Judy tells Violet that Dorley took Hart to the hospital, Violet realizes her mistake and thinks the poison caused Hart to black out. She and Judy hightail it to the hospital where they find Dorley. And just as they do, they overhear a doctor pronounce a man dead from poisoning in the same room Hart was wheeled into. But of course it wasn't Hart. He woke up and walked out the other door because he refused to pay the outrageous fees for our 1970s American healthcare system. Good thing those fees have gotten much better in the 40 years since this film came out. With Violet thinking she killed Hart, she steals a dead body in the hall she believes to be him, so the coroner cannot perform an autopsy on the body. She then throws it in the back of the car as Judy and Doralee catch up to her. The three ladies head down the street in a panic, 
arguing amongst one another before Violet crashes her car. That collision damages the car's front side. Dora Lee goes to get an iron tie. Dora Lee tries. God damn. <laughs> I, I'm making this as nice as possible for Chris's first edit. I'm just going to say you want to make me work. <laughs> Man. I'm learning to read tomorrow. Dora Lee goes to get a tire iron from the trunk of the car and so she can pop out the fender. But in the process, she finds the body isn't heart. So, well, now they got to return the body to the hospital and shove it in a wheelchair and stick that body in the bathroom. But, you know, oddly, this isn't the first time the cleaning lady has found a dead body in the bathroom like this. I mean, it happens all the time at the hospital I go to. I don't know about you boys. The next morning, the women are shocked to find Hart arrived for work as if nothing happened. They converse about it in the bathroom and learn from Dorley that Hart hit his head but did not have a chance to drink the coffee. Relieved that the three got away with their little shenanigans, they decide to go back and spend the rest of the day as normal and have a few drinks at the bar because it's weekend. However, unknown to them, the office snoop Roz, that bitch, is hiding in the stall, taking notes on some toilet paper of that entire conversation, and she squeals to heart. After that, all shit breaks loose, and the three girls tie him up in some serious M&M bondage. Man, that Marshall Mathers, he really knows how to get a guy where he wants him. I don't know. Uh, what happens at this point? Will the girls save the day? Will they get thrown in jail? Watch the movie to find out, or wait until Chris G spoils the whole effing thing. The end. Patrick, with a delightful summary like that, how did it do in the theaters? <laughs> All right. Nine to five was released on December 19th, 1980. Same day as Seems Like Old Times, The Jazz Singer, The Formula, and The Mirror Cracked. Same month as First Family, Altered States, uh, Flash Gordon, and Chris G's all-time favorite film, Popeye. Um, hey, what was the formula about? Uh, Do you remember? And Martin, I've never heard of that one. Marlon Brando and I believe George C. Scott, but I've never seen it. Oh, either. So, uh, it's made on a budget of ten million dollars, grossed over a hundred and three million dollars at the box office, making it the second highest-grossing film of nineteen eighty. Right behind only Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, which would, did way more than that. And right in front of Stir Crazy, Airplane, and Any Which Way You Can. Was nominated for one Academy Award for Best Original Song. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Nine to Five, sung by Dolly Parton, which lost to Fame from Fame. Uh, Dolly Parton, ironically, was nominated for three Golden Globes, not just two. Uh, best Original Song, uh, New Star of the Year in a Motion Picture Category of Female, and Best Actress in a Motion Picture Comedy or Musical. She lost all three. Uh, the film was placed on American Film Institute's 2000 list for 100 years, 100 laughs. It was number 74. Uh, it was also on AFI's 2004 list for 100 years, 100 songs. 9 to 5 was at number 78. Uh, and it was nominated in 2006 for the 100 Years 100 Cheers list, uh, but did not make the top 100. 
Uh, it was made into a Broadway musical in 2009, was spun off into a television series that ran sporadically from 1982 to 1988 for a total of 85 episodes. I remember the series. I didn't know it ran that fucking long. Um, no, I remember it not being very good. The, the, yeah. the key word being sporadically. Yeah, it came on and it would be off and then it came on again. And I think there was only actually three seasons, but... It was like it would be on for a year, and then it would be off for a year, and then it would be on for a year again. Uh, a sequel to the film has been discussed for decades, and most recently was discussed in 2017. 2019, Dolly Parton said the sequels was at that time off. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 83% critics and 74% audience, and that is the numbers on 9 to 5. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, I will say, even though she didn't win all those awards, out of all the people that she was up against, there's only one to this day who is America's sweetheart, and that's Dolly Parton. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, she she is a beloved American treasure, and I've never heard anyone say anything bad about Dolly Parton as a person. Maybe as an actress is not. I mean. I, I saw straight talk in the theater uh, that I, I probably used a couple of curse words directed in her direction at the end of that. But, uh, uh, but I, she's, you know, she's generally a very pleasant person and most people like her. So Chris G this is, well, I consider this one of the last 1970s films to be honest with you, even though it came out in December of 80, but did you see this in the theater? Because I think you were going to movies uh as a teenager around teenager around this time yeah i don't think i saw it in the theater i don't recall i'm pretty sure the first time i saw it would have been on cable probably a couple years after it came out i'm guessing patrick is this one of the hbo loop staples for you it, it was but i know i remember distinctly seeing this in a drive-in uh, you know in a double feature i don't remember the other film it was paired with at the time but I know my parents went to go see it and I went along for the ride and I remember watching this at the drive-in. Uh, and then once it came onto HBO, I think a couple of years later, it was on all the time. And that was, that was when I saw it a lot. I mean, I probably saw this film 30 to 40 times in my life. It was just constantly on HBO and it was just, if it came on, I'd rewatch it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was my babysitter for a whole summer. To be honest with you, uh, HBO loop that I, I think that 40 is 40 times would be a modest number. Uh, wow. I had it memorized word for word back in the day. And I don't think I've seen this maybe since the late eighties. And when I watched it this time, I still remembered it almost word for word. And, uh, it is ingrained into my memory. Uh, it's a fond memory because it's got a, a lot of actors that I like. Um, but, uh, let's talk about the actors. Uh, I want to start with Dabney Coleman because I think this was my entry into Dabney Coleman. Uh, and I've got a lot of fond memories of the asshole characters of the eighties, but he kind of set the standard, I think for that, for the whole decade. But, uh, what do you guys think of Dabney Coleman in this film? And whether you like it or not, do you think the film would have been as good as this is? without him uh patrick you know I, I i agree with you that dabney coleman became an identifiable character actor to me who always generally played the asshole 
uh, in a lot of other films throughout the remainder of the 80s. You know, with the one exception or two exceptions, I, I know you've uh, talked about Cloak and Dagger and really liking that film in the past. And then, it's not a great film. But I enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, on Golden Pond, which I believe was also released in 1980 with Jane Fonda. And I, you know, and on Golden Pond was a film that came on the HBO loop a lot. And although it's not what you what you would think a then eight year old or well, probably by the time it came on HBO as I was probably 10, a 10 year old would watch a lot. I watched it a lot because I knew who Jane Fonda and Dabney Coleman were. So I would rewatch that film and I enjoyed watching them in the film. But yeah, he's, it, it, you know, it's, it's weird is how, you know, looking back, he set a, a kind of a standard with this, that he would just play the villain or the jackass through the remainder of most of his career. Uh, and, and, and I still, you know, treasure seeing him when he did would pop up in something unusual, like you've got mail or I, I got what was the, was it boardwalk empire on HBO where he had, he had a small role in that. And I, you know, I, I loved watching, seeing him pick, uh, get other work, not playing the same type of character. Cause I think he's a really good actor. Did you watch him in Buffalo bill? I never, I, I remember the series. It was not a show that I watched a lot. I know I've seen oh, okay. an episode or two, but it was not a staple of my uh, childhood. Okay, I enjoyed that TV show. Uh, Chris, what did you think of Dabney? Uh, Dabney can do no wrong by me. And I think that if he was not, I agree with everything Patrick said. Um, he played that part to perfection throughout the 80s. And I think if he weren't, if he was not in this film, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good as it is. I, I think this movie, one of the notes I made as I was watching it was that this movie was perfectly cast with all four of the main characters. I think every character was perfectly cast, but I think if not for Dabney Coleman, there's no way, at least for me now, I come at it from a different perspective than probably, you know, a working lady in the eighties would watch it. Um, who would probably identify with the women in the movie a lot better than I would. But as far as I'm concerned, this movie would not, it would be less than half of what it was if Dabney Coleman were not in it. I think he had a lot of fun playing this part. And I think the ladies had a lot of fun working with them. I know yeah. that's why Jane Fonda uh, wanted him in uh, Golden Pond, uh, which I actually think Patrick was 81. I feel like that was a year later. Maybe. But yeah, it's, it's soon after. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, but no, I, it seems like everybody in this cast had fun and it worked because I really don't think that Dabney, I, I never heard anything really bad about Dabney and I don't think he's anything like these asshole characters that he plays. You know, I've, I've never heard him interviewed. I've never seen him on a talk show or anything. I've only seen the parts he's played and he's always played that same part. So I have no frame of reference to compare it with. I still use one of his lines from a uh, man with one red shoe uh, where he's uh, I don't know if either of you have seen that recently to quote it, but it, the the girl is mad at him because he's going to use the government's computers for to track Tom Hanks's character that are normally for nuclear weapons. He's like, what are the odds the Russians are going to nuke us on a Wednesday? And uh, that's still one of my favorite quotes. And it's a Dabney Coleman quote. I was with a bunch of friends this 
past weekend and we were talking about movies. And one of the subjects that came up were what are your guilty pleasures, like movies that you love to watch that are so bad, but you you just watch them when they're on. And one of mine was, and this it's it's rare when it's on, Young Doctors in Love. Oh yeah. Where Dabney was where Dabney was great in that movie. He carries films. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily pick the best of films. Man with one red shoe. Uh, but he carries the films. Dragnet. Oh, God, he was in that. Um, let's talk about the the ladies. Uh, Jane Fonda, I guess, would be the biggest name of the ladies. And um, what did you think about her? I think this was still her controversial post-Vietnam era. My dad, from the time he uh, he... She did her Hanoi Jane thing until the time he was, he passed away. He would only refer to her as Hanoi Jane. He did not like her, although he did like her in this film. But I think it's because he identified with her character because his mom uh, got divorced from her, his dad, because he left her for his secretary. It's a very common thing in the late 60s, 70s, maybe even today. But um, I really enjoyed Jane Fonda in this non-Jane Fonda-esque role. Uh, Chris, did you like her in this one? Yeah, no, I did. And I am of the same mindset. I didn't know a whole lot about her and, you know, was a little bit too young to know her political past. But I knew that I generally didn't like her um, prior to this. And so when I saw her in it, it, it felt like at the time, it could have been any actress playing that part because it was probably – it was the least character defining. I think the Lily Tomlin character character and um, the Dolly Parton character had a little bit more. Um, There's just a little bit more meat to their roles, even though they were Dolly Parton's character was obviously lighthearted and everything. It just seemed like the Jane Fonda character would have been easier to cast anybody else in that role as opposed to the other two, because Lily Tomlin, I know we'll get to her was perfect in her smart-assy role. And I had known her from her sketch comedy prior to that, you know, laughing and things like that. Dolly Parton I knew. And um, I just didn't know enough about Jane Fonda. So I thought she was okay in this movie. Having rewatched it for this, I thought she was really good. Patrick? Yeah, I mean, Jane Fonda, this is not a Jane Fonda-type role. Uh, it, You know, I, this is probably my introduction to her as an actress, back when I saw this, uh, yeah, I take that back. I did see China syndrome. And once again, you know what? And it might've been China syndrome. This was paired with <laughs> at the time. Cause they would sometimes well, do go. a cross. Uh, That's a hell of a combo. Well, yeah, but they would sometimes do that same actors and actresses at the drive-in. But I, uh, cause I know that was just a couple of years before. So I, I know I saw that, that one is a film that went over sailing over my head, but I didn't, she didn't make it an impression for me from that film. Um, that film I saw and forgot most of, and, to this day forgotten most of the plot lines for but you know knowing who she is and even her politics and her you know hollywood power back in the late 70s early 80s this seems like a very unusual role for her because she's more a a much stronger female char character in most of her other roles and and this is this character the character in this is essentially very very meek now she has the character arc where she finds strength over the course of the film, but she's in incredibly meek at the very beginning of it. And it, you know, of the three characters, 
Violet is very defined. Dora Lee is very defined and not much changes for them other than their potential status at the office by the end of the film. But Jane Fonda's character basically joins them in that regard. And she is distinctly not that at the beginning, but I did like her in it. I don't think she does a bad job, but it's distinctly to me, not a typical Jane Fonda role. I will say watching it this time, uh, her conservative dress and clothing, I found oddly attractive this time around. I don't know <laughs> what that says about me, but uh, you're getting older. This, maybe, but there was something very attractive. You, you about, dug the hat. You dug the hat. Well, you. How can you not? Um, the next act, actress. Well, would, real quickly, real quickly before I move sure. on. Um, I had seen something about this. I don't know. Randomly, several months ago. But I think, as Patrick was saying, it's such a non-Jane Fonda type of role. But Jane Fonda, from what I recall in this uh, uh, documentary or whatever it was I saw, was really the one who championed this movie. She's the one who essentially pushed for it to get made. I don't know if she was a producer on the movie or an uncredited producer or anything. But from what I recall, it, it came to her attention. And she's the one who really got this movie to be made. So even though it was I not her type of role, her. Really I think this was her production company, their first production. Yeah. Maybe that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. But I'm sorry, I cut you off. What was the last part of that? No, that that was it. It was just, as you said, it's not a Jane Fonda type of role, but she was really the driving force behind getting it made because she felt so strongly about the topic, the subject matter. Now, Lily Tomlin plays Violet. I don't know if she's typecast at this point or not. Sarcastically funny. Um, I, I at times don't know if she was acting. Uh, I doubt she read. She was reading much off the script. I feel a lot of it was ad libbed on her part. Um, I will say that I had read that Carol Burnett was would have been offered the part if if uh, she turned this one down. And I think Carol Burnett would have been very good as well. This was at the height of the Carol Burnett show, so I think that they would have had a pretty decent replacement for her. But Violet is is probably the the most interesting of the three ladies for me. Um, who do we go with first, Patrick? Uh, Chris, what did you think of of Lily Tomlin? I, I you've kind of tipped your hat already to that. Yeah, I thought she was great. I I think I agree with you. I think a lot of her lines were probably ad libbed, and um, a lot of it she probably wasn't even acting. She was just kind of behaving. You know, she was just kind of reacting. And uh, I thought she did a perfect job. She was well cast. I could see Carol Burnett in the role as well. Uh, but I think Lily Tomlin nailed it. Yeah, I mean, Lily Lily Tomlin, it, she very much is playing a Lily Tomlin-like character. I mean, this is what I kind of expect from her and throughout her entirety of her career. Um, you know, this and Incredible Sh- Shrinking Woman were the two films that introduced me to Lily Tomlin. I didn't know her from anything else prior the, uh, you know, I became aware of it later when laughing, when in reruns in Tucson, uh, you know, when I was in probably late elementary school, junior high, and then I saw her on that. Uh, but the, the, this was the, you know, film that introduced me to who she was. I mean, she's perfectly cast for Violet. That's what Violet is supposed to be is that sarcastic kind of take charge type of character. You never saw, do you, uh, you had to have seen, all of me eventually. Yeah. But that came out years oh. later. Yeah. I mean, I, I, anything with Steve Martin, I pretty much saw in the eighties, okay. even the shitty stuff like pennies from heaven, but 
the man with two brains. I don't think I've seen that one actually. Oh, it's shitty. It's bad. It's Kathleen Turner, right? Yeah. Okay. Was that the one? Was that the one also with Charles Grodin? I. Th- oh, God, I, I think he was in that. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's in that too. Yeah. In in the late seventies, early eighties, Charles Grodin would probably be the only other person that could have played Dabney Coleman's Mister Hart. But I still don't think it would have been close enough. <laughs> and lastly, in her first acting role ever, America's Sweetheart, as we've already mentioned. And I don't think she was really acting much herself. Dolly Parton, um, delightful. I don't know how anybody could dislike her or her character in this film. Um, this I wasn't a big country fan, so I might this might have been my introduction to her. I don't think I was... I knew her music at this time, uh, but she was she was overly delightful when I saw it as a little kid, and just as equally charming all these years later. Um, Patrick, what do you think? Um, best little whorehouse in Texas quality, or <laughs> well, I, I, best little whorehouse in Texas is a, a film that I actually do like. It's one of my favorite musicals of the '80s. Now, that's not saying much because I fucking hate <laughs> musicals and. Uh-huh. But there are... Xanax is number one for Patrick. No, mm. no, no. Uh, but you know, she, she does a good job. I mean, she's got, she's got a screen presence. She's got charisma and, 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 but I'll also say, I think she's playing herself. I mean, even though she's this character, every, every character she's ever played on the screen just seems to be a variation of what, who I think the Dolly Parton character is. I don't know if that's Dolly Parton in real life, but I think that's how she portrays herself in the world. And in every film, I think she's portrayed herself the exact same way. And I like that character. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And it fits very well in this uh, film, but I, I think she has the least to do other than to play the attractive secretary uh, that, uh, you know, obviously Hart lusts af- after and wants everybody to think that he's having an affair with. But uh, I I don't think that, you know, she has to stretch. Now, that being said, I don't think it required her to stretch. And I, th- and I think she did a good job with what she did. But she is she's not at the same level as acting performance as the other three actors that she's the primary actor she's with. She was there to pick up the pencils, Patrick. That's very important. Correct. Well, and as Dabney Coleman said with one of his great lines, you mean so much more to me than just a dumb secretary. <laughs> I mean, only Dabney could pull that line off so well. With a straight face. With a straight face. We we could just do a husband and wife team with him and Lily Tomlin, and I would watch that movie. <laughs> uh, last actor I wanted to mention is Sterling Hayden. This wasn't his last role, was it? Do you guys know? Pretty, I think pretty close. Because I don't think he was around too much longer. I love Sterling Hayden. Uh, I don't know if him being in this film would then qualify this film to be a film noir. Uh, but uh, he was like Bill Fifth, but he was only in the last, what, three minutes of the film? Um, what did you guys think of him? He, he's, I don't know if he was, trying to be a Southern gentleman poorly or what he was trying to be. But with the, the goatee and his outfit and the accent, it didn't all quite fit together, 
but I love Sterling. I like seeing him in it. Uh, Chris? Yeah, prior to watching it this time, I never would have known that that was Sterling Hayden playing the character. Um, I think I saw his name in the opening credits or I saw it in the, the, the title, you know, when I was searching for it online. And I n- never would have put together, oh, my God, that Southern dude was Sterling Hayden. So, you know, it was a nice little cameo. Sadly, it was not his last movie. I just uh, did a quick uh, IMDb search, and he did Venom after this. What? Do you remember yeah, that? Toby Hooper. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't I don't recall that one. I was just looking at it, too. I saw the second to last one was Gas, and I remember that yeah. film. I saw that one. And he did the t- uh, television miniseries Blue and the Gray, where mm-hmm. he played John Brown. And I, you know, I didn't realize that was him in that, but I distinctly remember that. I had to watch that in school a couple times. Besides this, the uh, the Long Goodbye was the last great film I saw him in. In seventy three. Yeah. I don't remember anything in between that he did. It's, I'm trying to think. Godfather, I think, was seventy two. So that would have been that was seventy two. But yeah, no, he's, he's Sterling Hayden is, I mean, he's a, a kind of a iconic character actor from that, from that generation. And it is unusual to see him playing as Chris just said, that Southern gentleman type character is just not what I'm used to him doing. And it was kind of entertaining to see that aspect of it. But, uh, you know, even that was just a, a, a different characterization of a controlling male figure. Well, if you notice, the out of all the changes that the ladies did, the only one that he said no to was equal pay for men. Yeah, men. yeah. So it's all right to give him some incentives, but you know you don't want to get carried away with it. You know, curiously, curiously, knowing now that it was him, would you have wanted to see more of that character? No. Yeah. Honest, no, I I don't. I really, really don't. And, but that's probably my perspective now watching this film because I have a very different perspective than that. I, watching this as a kid watching it now, which brings me to a question <laughs> watching it as okay. an adult. The, the first half is pretty dark and edgy. The second half is almost silly slapstick. Does it work for you the way the two halves of the film kind of mesh to me it, as an adult, it's not as endearing as it was as a kid, but uh, I was just wondering on your guys' opinion. Patrick, it, huh. the film doesn't work for me as a whole, as an adult. And I agree with you that there's a, a different, there's a distinct tonal shift uh, from the point where Hart falls and hits his head and goes off to the hospital and then hijinks erupt from the remainder of the film, you know, because at the beginning of it, it's, you know, it's a film of making a social commentary about, you know, equal rights of women in the workplace and then after that, it's, you know, remember those, the disgusting, so chauvinistic, uh, egotistical, uh, lying uh, bigot? Well, we can be just as vile and criminal as they can. <laughs> and that's what the second half of the <laughs> film is. And I, I know the idea is this, oh, well, they're getting even, but they take it to a completely different level. And it, it, it's, to me, this is almost like fe- a feminist porn from the late 70s early 80s is that oh look how women are going to get the advantage over all these evil men because every male character in the film is played in a in a unflattering light 
every single one, even Sterling Hayden at the very end, is that you know, he is a very controlling man, used to getting his way, even to the point where Hart, he kind of neuters Hart and says, no, you're going with me. You know, you have nothing to do about it. But none of the character, male characters are played with any kind of, you know, positive aspect whatsoever. Uh, and that that seemed to me like it was just so glaringly vacant in that regard. But it, you know, even Judy's husband, who wants to take her back, uh, becomes another kind of controlling male character who, you know, want, insists on finding out what's going on in her life and what's going on with her boss and then starts to judge her for that. I mean, it's it was just kind of, it was odd watching it now. When I was a kid, most of this shit went over my head. Now as an adult, I go, yeah, you know, it's not that I, I don't think that, that there weren't men who were controlling and egotistical and, you know, possibly were worthy of being strung up from a garage door opening belt in the middle of their room. Uh, it just, it was just like, wow, this just seems incredibly one-sided and you gloss over the fact that these women potentially thought they killed their boss and were trying to cover it up and then kidnapped him, abducted him and held him hostage for shot at him, shot at him for several weeks. And this is all done in entertainment and isn't it fun? And it just like, yeah, this, I mean, it's, it's, not as dark it's just it's almost played like naked gun like and it just to me it just didn't work as well a apparently the original draft is he actually gets killed uh and or they're trying to kill him and it's so it's not it wasn't it was a much much darker film and they lightened it up uh for the second half of this film but yeah i didn't think the tone worked but it went far beyond there being two distinct halves which i do think it exists I don't think the tone worked because it was just so, so heavy handed and glossed over everything that the, everything wrong that the female characters were doing it as it and wrote it off as they were justified to do it. Chris, none of that would have happened if they hadn't smoked the Maui Wowie the night before. Yeah. It's primo. <laughs> that was actually going to be, I actually thought about that as one of the uh, sponsors brought to you by Maui Wowie. It's primo short, but sweet. Um, do you guys have any points you want to talk about? I just shot my wad on that five minute. Yeah, I thought right. I thought Patrick was pretty definitive there. Yeah, okay, no, I mean I, I'll talk about the song. I think the song's fucking great. I think it's uh, I, it was a catchy I, tune. I, I don't. You want me to introduce it before we go to the music section? No, we could just go go into it. It's just that okay. you know that it's you know the, I, I was I, I was not. You know, my family kind of listened to country music. I don't distinctly remember uh, Dolly Parton being one of the artists that they listened to, but I know my mom had this album or her nine to five album, whatever the album that the song was on. And it was a song that I heard all the time during that time frame. So it, it, it you know, it was pretty prolific in spread, you know, on the radio and, and crossed over from not only from country stations, but to kind of more poppy stations. And, and I, and I think it's a good song. I, you know, even to this day, I think it, it's, it's, I, I like that song. Yeah. I think it's catchy. I think it drops you right into the movie. The second you hear it, you're going to watch a movie that for some of the dark overtones it has in the beginning, they do a lot of it with a lighthearted manner. And one of the notes I made was that, you know, right out of the gate, that song gets you right into the movie and the characters, every character, you instantly know everything about them in the first 30 seconds of their screen presence. So I think, uh, you know, 
the song lends to that in the same way. You know what kind of movie you're going to get right out of the gate from that song. I think besides this song of hers, anything with Kenny Rogers she did, because my mom was a big Kenny Rogers fan. Those were the only my only introduction to her back in the early eighties. Yeah, my my parents were into Kenny Rogers, so uh, you know Islands in the Stream. But that came a few years later after this. That you know, the, yeah, uh, that was, and they had the Christmas album together in the eighties. Uh, so I I know that they had those albums as well, and that that but that that came distinctly after this. Dolly Parton became a, a, an icon after Nine to Five. Because if, after this, she does Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Uh, really, I think I think it might be her next film. Uh, and unfortunately, she has a missed up of Rhinestone, which I still have never seen to this day because I've heard it's so shitty. I, I, I had, yes, skip that. I have never had any desire to see that film. But uh, you know, she eventually you know you know found her place again. Steel Magnolias is a great film, you know, and. Uh, and it was it was one that I really enjoyed, and that's heavy drama for her. So I got to ask the important questions on this show, uh, Chris. Sir, what is the best screwed up line you've seen in a movie? Spock's line where he calls LSD LDS, or Jane Fonda where she calls S and M M and M in this film? Which one is the funnier line for you? Uh, I'll go with the M&M because I just saw that more recently. Patrick, Mr. Trekkie. Sure. Uh, I, <laughs> and I hadn't, I didn't have that question ahead of time. So with only those two examples, <laughs> I'll go with the M&M. I think it plays better in this than it does in Star Trek. Yeah. It was an either or a question. All right. Anything else? Last no. call. Nope. I'm good. All right, let's go around the table here. Uh, final thoughts on the film, and does it stand the test of time? Patrick, we'll start with you because you hated it, despised it, disliked it, etc. No, I have to say I didn't despise it. I, I, I that's that's overly harsh, and I hope I didn't get that impression. It, it, it's weird looking at it now. This was the second highest grossing film of 1980. I mean, behind only Star Wars. Now, granted, Star Wars did well over double its box office. Uh, or sorry, Empire. But, you know, that there are films like Airplane, which I think is a far superior comedy to this, um, that any which way you can, which I actually was another HBO staple. And I think I like I and I have not revisited that in about 25, 30 years either. So I'm very curious how that stands up. But that was one that I liked a lot back then. I, I really enjoyed this. But kind of exactly what Chris said, I saw it a ton in the 80s and I don't think I've seen it since the eighties. And so watching this was very much with fresh eyes. I remembered a lot of the dialogue. I remembered most of the story beats, but I was really kind of taken back with like, wow, it's like this over stereotypical of every male character is a piece of shit. And all the female characters are just put upon and have to overcome these piece of shit men who obviously control their lives. And they are therefore justified to do horrible, horrible things absolutely horrible things. Now they're redeemed at the end because they're 
freeing up the other women in the office. That's essentially what they're doing uh, at the end by in, invoking new policy in Hart's name. And yes, that's noble, but it doesn't really take back the fact that you almost poisoned the guy, you shot at him, you tied him up, you kidnapped him, and you held him hostage for a week or so. Uh, and th- that seems really extreme. And at the end of the day, it's just like I don't sympathize with any of the 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 any of the characters. None of them to me are very uh, redeeming, and therefore there's no access point to me to really enjoy the film as much. It's an okay film, uh, and I can see where some people may like it. Primarily, probably women, especially women who were in the workforce probably in the late '70s and early '80s. But when you look at it and go, it's 74% audience and 83% critics. Yeah, that's about right. You know, this is not a 90% film. It's to me, it's not instant classic, uh, where airplane to me is an American fucking classic that needs to be, you know, appreciated every year, if not multiple times a year. So no, it does not stand the test of time. Chris. I'll agree with a lot of what Patrick said. I had a question, Patrick, before I get into mine. So if this case comes to you, uh, before your court, what's the sentencing for the three ladies? probably pretty bad because you know it's the, the law with the shot being fired in itself is that's mandatory, yeah. mandatory prison and then you use the kidnapping aspect of it as that that you get into the question of you know was he ever released uh, on did they release him before he uh, get hurt, got hurt or did he escape he escaped so uh, that's going to be very serious. I mean, there's a there's there's a lot of severe crimes here that, uh, in addition to that, is did, does he get hurt in any of the things that they do to him? You know, and I got to imagine that it doesn't feel fucking good. They stole a body from the hospital. Yeah, oh, that that too. I that one they they stole the body, but then brought it back fairly quickly. But yeah, it, it, even like Violet in that character when he's, she's talking to the candy striper. Wait, I'm a doctor. Why don't you piss off? You know, like, like really, you know, like you were okay talking to this woman until you realized that you're wearing a doctor's robe and that you could just basically treat her like shit. I mean that to me, that's kind of symbolic of what was wrong with these characters is that, you know, they, they're okay when they're downtrodden, but when they're in power, they treat other people like shit, you know, and that, that to me is a reflection on their character. The bottom line, these ladies are doing some time. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I agree with a, a ton of what Patrick said. I think it uh, and I agree particularly about airplane and any which way you can, because I, I love any which way you can almost as much as every which way but loose. Not quite, but almost. How about um, in relation to uh, going ape? Well, I think I think this movie would have been better if it had an orangutan in it. Yeah, sure. Don't get me wrong. No, uh, I like I, I liked it. Does it stand the test of time? That's tough to say because obviously so much has changed in the last 40 years. So I don't think it does stand the test of time. Depends on your perspective. (laughs) Exactly. In terms of um, the storyline. However, from a comedy standpoint and from an entertainment standpoint, I think it does. I I enjoyed watching it again, probably more so this time than when I had seen it previously, whenever that was, probably in bits and pieces over the last 10 years or so. Uh, so content, no, it doesn't stand the test of time, but as far as, uh, entertainment value, yeah, I think it does. I enjoyed it. Well, yeah, I think it stands the test of time as well. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia speaking there. 
I mean, you, I can't, you can't have seen this film as many times as I didn't, you know, not have some sort of fondness for it. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to disagree with anything Patrick said, but it is still an enjoyable film. It's got its weaknesses, but I do think 75% was that the Rotten Tomatoes. I think that's a very fair score. Dabney Coleman's performance holds up. Uh, you would find a lot of actors hard pressed to be as annoying as he is and seemingly so effortlessly. So stands the test of time. Great film. Watch it. If you haven't seen it, decide if he's a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical. What do we say? Big I forget it. all the words. Big it. Well, as, as he Big says, so, so he's got a few problems. He's got a few problems. <laughs> yeah, but I'm trying to remember when, where was he a bigot? Yeah, I don't think he was a bigot. That they must have cut. Well, the, the mailroom guy uh, who was black said something about uh, Judy getting the job where he can't get the job. So maybe that's. Uh, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. There you go. Okay. There's the bigot. I was because I, I don't remember. More implied. Yeah. It's a yeah. bit of a stretch, but okay. Yeah. Well, watch the film and let us know what you think his bigot moment was. All right, well, that's it for our review of 9 to 5. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section and for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com. Please rate it from 1 to 5 stars on that page as well. If you enjoyed today's review, please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHM Podcast Network, where we are trying to get 20 billion followers because Elon Musk says there's lots of robots out there. Um, well, that's it for today. Until the next time, I'm Chris. I'm Chris, too. And I'm Patrick. I should have said I'm Chris number one. I don't want people to get confused. I'll dub it in. Okay. I'll put uh, it in the I'm Chris one. And <laughs> <laughs> we girl. have to get out of here, and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of MHM Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.